Welcome to Pontifax, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. I'm Bree, and today we're not ranking anything, but bringing you a very special interview with the Sede Vicantis papal claimant, David Bodden, a.k.a. Pope Michael. And this is a tricky one. I'm very sad to report that only a week after this interview took place, Pope Michael experienced a cerebral hemorrhage and was rushed to hospital. There, he underwent emergency brain surgery and was kept in a coma. And although he woke for a short period of time, Pope Michael died on August 2nd, 2022. This means what you're about to hear was Pope Michael's last interview, and final gospel, as it were. This has been a strange and unusual responsibility placed upon our shoulders, and we've debated what to do about this interview. We did not want to be seen as attempting to capitalize on his death, and so we've held this interview back for a time. But we have decided to release it, as Pope Michael was very excited for us to do so, and his followers have encouraged us to as well. I also feel that it's important to release this interview and let him tell you about his belief in his own words, as immediately after his death, rumors about a deathbed recantation hit the internet swiftly, particularly in light of the fact that his public obituary didn't mention his papal claims at all. These rumors are untrue, as Pope Michael was not conscious in his final days, and regardless of how we feel about his beliefs, propagating untrue myths would be a disservice to them, and to him. I very much enjoyed my interview with Pope Michael, and I hope you will too. We hope that he rests in peace. On October 11, 1962, the Second Vatican Council was opened by Pope John XXIII with the intent of updating church doctrine, policy, and practice to bring the church into the 20th century. The council ran in 12-week sessions for four years and was closed by Pope Paul VI on December 8, 1965. This council, which we will cover in so much more detail in the future, had a massive impact on many aspects of the church and sent ripples throughout the entire Catholic community. Some of these Catholics were extremely unhappy. In their minds, the Second Vatican Council implemented heretical changes to the doctrine and rites of the Catholic Church, including the revision of the sacrament of Mass, Mass being offered in vernacular languages rather than in Latin, the new doctrine on salvation, and the emphasis placed on ecumenism, which encouraged greater unity with other denominations of Christianity. And because these particular Catholics viewed these changes as heretical, they also believed that the popes who issued them, Popes John XXIII and Paul VI, were heretics, and therefore, by the concept of late sententiae, which is essentially a form of automatic excommunication, These popes had automatically resigned the papacy. By the same logic, this also meant that in their view, any successive popes that confirm Vatican II, which of course they all have, have automatically preempted themselves from legitimacy. 
This view is known as sede vacantism, which implies that the Holy See is vacant and has been vacant since the death of Pope Pius XII in 1958, as he was the last pope before the Second Vatican Council. So they believe that all the popes who have followed, Popes John XXIII, Paul VI, John Paul I, John Paul II, Benedict XVI, and Francis, have all been illegitimate. And they also believe that the cardinals who voted in assent of the canons of Vatican II, and then in the elections of popes who confirm Vatican II, are also heretics, and are deprived of their office, also by Latte Sententiae. Which means that in the eyes of the Sede Vicantis, there are no popes and no cardinals by which to conduct an actual conclave for a legitimate pope. And this leads to conclavism, because somebody has to elect a pope. Conclavists are individuals who desire to elect a new pope, and some choose to act on this by hosting their own conclave. And this is where our guest, Pope Michael, comes in. David Bodden is a sedivacantist and conclavist who on July 16, 1990, gathered with five other people, which included his parents, at the Bellevue General Store in Bellevue, Kansas, to form a conclave and elect a pope. David Bodden was the one elected and became Pope Michael at the age of 30. Since then, Pope Michael believes that he has been the one true head of the Catholic Church, gathering followers, giving sermons from his website, vaticaninexile.com, featuring in documentaries, and occasionally going viral. And fortunately, he has now granted us an interview. And if you want more of Pope Michael, we have given him and his papacy, or technically anti-papacy, a full rating on Patreon a few months ago, and the video of this interview is posted there in full as well. And a final note. As Sede Vicantists do not believe in the legitimacy of the popes since Vatican II, occasionally when they're mentioned, you will hear their pre-pontifical names. Pope Benedict XVI is referred to as Joseph Ratzinger, and Pope Francis is referred to as Jorge Bergoglio. You will also hear Pope Michael discuss Archbishop Lefebvre, who was the Archbishop of Toul and the founder of the Society of St. Pius X. He became a prominent Sede Vicantist and was excommunicated by the Vatican in 1988. So please enjoy our interview with Pope Michael. Thank you so much for joining us on Pontifax, and it is my absolute pleasure to introduce Pope Michael. Okay, I'm glad to be here. <laughs> so, Pope Michael, we have some questions to go over with you about the state of the Catholic Church, your papacy, how it all came to be. And, and most of my audience is coming to this podcast from a place of understanding papal history as history. We talk about the popes as, as like movers and people who had a tremendous impact on history, whether that is nations or kings or countries or wars. So they may not have the, the theological background that you do. So I'd like to start off by asking you first, uh, you were raised a staunch Catholic, but after the Second Vatican Council in 1965, you and your family became Sede Vicantists. Well, we didn't become Sede Vicantists immediately. Okay. Although we were concerned, we were still going in 
to um, the regular churches and watch what was called the changes. I mean, right. you didn't wake up, go in one week and have a Latin Tridentine Mass and the next week the Novus Ordo. It was a gradual change starting in about 64 was the first decree after the decree on the liturgy in 63. So they started putting things into the vernacular. For mm -hmm. instance, my first communion, which would have been around 65, the uh, canon was still in Latin, but parts of the mass were already in the vernacular. And eventually it was all in the vernacular. Yes, that happened in 68. I had to stop and think a minute because that's one of the things I'm serializing on the Pope Speaks over at the Vatican in exile is a history of what went on because most people are new to this. And new would be someone who came into this in 75. Mm -hmm. Some of us are veterans, for instance, in 65, a group of concerned Catholics in Oklahoma City pulled their children out of the CCD classes because at best they were worthless mm -hmm. and started teaching them the faith on their own. I joined that in about early 67. Okay. Found that. So, I mean, a lot of things were going on before Archbishop Lefebvre even like started the Society of St. Pius X. Right. Right. So for for our audience's benefit, can you explain what sedevacantism is and what that belief means? Well, basically, it comes from the Latin sede vacante, which are two words. And originally it was two words when the term was coined. It was probably about 78. It might have been earlier. But that's when I first became acquainted with the particular term. But sede vacante is what happens after the death of one pope and before the election of the next pope. So, for instance, after uh, uh, Joseph Ratzinger resigned and before Jorge Bergoglio was elected, the conciliar church were sede vacantists because they believe the seat was empty, which is what that means when you translate. We believe that the man in Rome was not pope. Now, an offshoot of sede vacantism is what's called conclavism. That's those who wanted to elect a pope. Right. And so uh, your family and the changes came about in the church after the Second Vatican Council, because the Sede Vicantists believe that, that parts of the Second Vatican Council are heretical. So what parts of the council are condemnable and, and why? Well, I decided, well, rather than print something out, I get out my book. <laughs> <laughs> Will the real Catholic Church please stand up? Because And I bookmarked. Okay, we'll go to the decree on the liturgy, which all but four of the bishops at Vatican II voted for. Mm -hmm. uh, and all the uh, traditionalist bishops signed because they don't claim the contrary. Archbishop Lefebvre claims to not have signed two later documents. So that implies he signed this document, or else he would have mentioned it. Mm -hmm. Let's see. Uh, so in here, yes, in my book, I compare uh, the uh, Constitution on the Liturgy with the Jansenist Synod of Pistua. Okay. Because they sound a lot alike. That was condemned in a bull, Octorum Fide, centuries ago. Yes. Okay. 
Uh, quote from Vatican II, for this purpose, the rites are to be simplified, due care being taken to preserve their substance, elements which with the passage of time came to be duplicated or added with but little advantage are now to be discarded. We go over to the uh, Jansenist Synod Pistra, the proposition of the Synod by which it shows itself eager to remove the cause through which in part there has been induced a forgetfulness of the principles of the order of the liturgy, by recalling it, that is the liturgy, to a greater simplicity of rites, etc. But that's not the worst thing. We get further on in the decree from Vatican II, we find the heresy of modernism. And in fact, we have to go clear back to a supporting decree to Rubicarm Instructum, which uh, John 23rd signed in 1960, which mm-hmm. changed the rubrics for the calendar, the missile, and the breviary. And that's what uh, you're um, a more, I would call them liberal traditionalists, such as the Society of St. Pius X, on into the end all, used that particular calendar. Nothing wrong with revising the calendar. Pius XII did it, St. Pius X did it. I have to look and see who else did it. But it's the principle upon which they did it. Now, quote from this supporting decree, in preparing or revising the historical lessons of feasts of whatever class, the following should be observed. The commonplace should be avoided. False or inappropriate passage should be deleted or corrected. The proposition false, what they are saying in essence is that the church has lied to us through the liturgy and we have to fix this. So in other words, the historical lessons are lies in some cases. And this is repeated in Vatican II in the decree on the liturgy because Pope Pius XII condemns these errors. For this reason, whenever there was a question defining a truth revealed by God, the sovereign pontiff and the councils in their recourse to the theological sources, as they are called, have not seldom drawn many an argument from the sacred science of the liturgy. In other words, in defining a doctrine, one of the places they go for guidance is, what does the church say in the liturgy? Uh, there's a book where, where we got the Bible, and that's how they determined in part which books go into the Bible and which don't. Their use, they were already in use in the liturgy before the canon of the Bible was set down. By Pope Damasus the first. Was it Pope Damasus first? Yeah, I, <laughs> I don't have all of that <laughs> in my head because I, I focus more on these things. And then we right. can go into the uh, Constitution on Divine Revelation. For as the centuries succeed one another, the church constantly moves forward toward the fullness of divine truth until the words of God reach their complete fulfillment in here. So what they're saying is uh, doctrine is incomplete. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's over time we discovered. Well, one of the principles in defining a doctrine is the church looks clear back to Scripture and the church fathers. What do they teach on this question? It's not the, the only thing defining a doctrine might do is we're setting this down and we're saying this is Catholic teaching to go against it is heretical. And then I've got like four or five other things in this book. Oh, well, yes, this is. Interesting. In Lumen Gentium, it says, but the plan of salvation also includes those who acknowledge the creator in the first place among whom are the Muslims 
they profess to hold the faith of Abraham, and together with us, they adore the one merciful God, mankind's judge on the last day. Now, if you take a look over at the Quran and their inscriptions on the Dome of the Rock, Muslims reject the doctrine of the Trinity. And I've done this in a presentation. I have two stick figures. I call them James and John. Now, James worships one God, and John might worship a different God. But they're both monotheists. And so if James and John both worship the same God, then they either both worship the true God or both worship a false God. Right. Now, if James and John worship two different gods, we worship God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Muslims worship Allah, which is translated in English would be God. But it's a different God because they reject specifically the Trinity. So if you have two monotheists, only one of them can worship the true God. Now, both of them could also worship false gods because we have this false idea that if you're a monotheist, we all worship the same God, and it's just simply not true. Right. And so in in the liturgy or in the pronouncements of the Second Vatican Council, they're not only simplifying and losing the art of what's being said and the truth of what's being said, but you also, this what you're talking about now is more this idea of conciliarism, which is is more embracing that came out of that of of different religions, correct? Uh, that's a fruit of this because the Lumen Gentium. That's I think one of the ones uh, Archbishop Lefebvre said he did sign leads into that and is promoting false ecumenism. Now we certainly will talk with non Catholics, non Christians, etc. But when we talk, we're going to say, this is what we believe. Here's why we believe it. You're welcome to come join us and accept this, but we're not going to minimize doctrine. Right. We're not going to de-emphasize it. We are going to hold it. This is true. And therefore, we hold the contrary is false. And therefore, what was written in Vatican Council makes it heretical because it's minimizing those. Right. It's, It's denying doctrines of the faith. Right. And I mean, you can go online and look up heresies of Vatican II and several places have pulled out a lot more than I did. I focused on the decree on the liturgy because it was, I think, the first decree signed. All but four voted for it. We don't right. know if they refused to sign it. But all the bishops that are involved in traditionalism did sign it. Therefore, they signed a heretical document and resigned any office they have in the church. Because this is this idea of lacte sententiae, which is that by signing and adhering to a an heretical document, they are preemptively resigning their position. Right. Right. And this is this is what the Sede Vacantists believe about John the Twenty Third, John Paul the First, John Paul the Second, Benedict the Sixteenth, and Francis, and all of the cardinals and bishops, because they adhere to the documents of the Second Vatican Council, and therefore preemptively are not legitimate in their position. Uh, that only applies to John Paul I and two, Benedict and Francis. Okay. That was the uh, Sede Vacantis position way back because in the early 70s, after we left the Novus Ordo, the conciliar church, we were all implicitly Sede Vacantists 
in our hearts. We didn't have a name for it, but how can a pope give us this garbage we keep hearing from the pulpits? Which that's what drove us out of there. It wasn't the Novus Ordo. It's the one thing that got our attention. Hold it. I've been walking out on sermons because they sounded wrong. My dad walked out on two. I know of another man. He had a large family, filled a whole pew. I forget what the uh, priest was preaching on, but it was heretical. He gets up, looks down at his wife at the other end of the pew, and says, Costello's out, in a loud voice, and proceeds to march right down the center aisle. That would have been a sight to see. I'm sure it would have been, <laughs> but that's the type of man he was. He didn't, you know, like sneak out. Right. He, he made a bold statement. <laughs> and that would have been very impactful for the people who were present, who might have been questioning what they right. were so, believing. You know, we were all questioning. We didn't know what was going on. But once the Novus Ordo came out, for most of us, that helped us focus. All right, hold it. This came out of all this mess we've been questioning it's time that church has left us mm, okay. we didn't leave the church they left us by heresy and so to define those terms novus ordo and conciliar church since we will be using them a lot novus ordo referring to the changes that came into the catholic church post second vatican council well, basically when you talk about the novus ordo it's the change in the mass mainly although they changed the rights of most of the other sacraments. And in 74, yeah, I think it's in Sriracha Liturgica, uh, Paul VI, because some people, when they were translating from the Latin that came out from the Vatican into the various vernaculars, they were fixing the rights of the sacraments. And he said, mm -hmm. no, 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 don't do that. We change the essential rights of the sacraments. It's right there in the decree. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, and so that kicks I mean, off the Novus Ordo. Right. Okay. And the conciliar church, when we refer to that, it's what people as, let's say, the general public would consider the Catholic church because of this conciliarism that they are right. expressing. Yeah, that's a heretical church. That was actually an, either as of the closing speech of Paul VI or the council. He called yes. it the church of the council, which some translated as conciliar church. And then some of the negotiations between Lefebvre and the Vatican, the term was brought up again. And so to distinguish us from that church, we call it the conciliar church because we are the Catholic church. Right. So in breaking with the conciliar church or having the church leave you, as you said, you became a sedevacantist, as you said. Yeah. and. Right. You and other sedevacantists decided to elect a new pope in this conclavism. People who wanted to elect a new pope, to have right. a pope who wasn't following a heretical line. This conclave resulted in your election. Right. So how was that conclave that elected you determined? And, and are you able to say who participated? Uh, yes, I can do that, but that's kind of, that's at the end of the story. The <laughs> idea of electing a pope goes clear back to the early 1970s. The father Joaquin Sainz Ariaga from Mexico, who was an expert for his bishop at Vatican II. Mm. You know? So he had contacts in Rome. Well, 
he wrote a book called Sede Vacante, which is not in translation from the Spanish. Well, I would read it. <laughs> yes, I'm sure you would. He also wrote the New Montenian Church, which is in translation. Okay. So he and some others in Mexico got together, you know, trying to sort things out. He determined the papacy is vacant. So the next step is to elect a pope. Mm-hmm. So he had friends in Rome. He flew to Rome and looked up the conservative cardinals to see if he couldn't get them to start doing something. Well, they apparently refused. I forget what it said, because I don't have a copy of the article. From It's a publication called Veritas, which came out of Louisville, Kentucky. It translates something he'd sent in to them into English. Reporting, He's basically reporting back to anyone who would listen. I bombed out with the cardinals. So the next step was to go to the bishops. And in May of 1976, he and two other priests came from Mexico to visit Archbishop Lefebvre in the Houston, Texas area Mm -hmm. to discuss the election of a pope. And some of the, there were about, oh, a thousand people, 500 from the Houston area at that society chapel. And about 500 of us came from central United States for the confirmations Saturday and Sunday. Well, the priest, of course, came on a Saturday, having something to do on Sundays. <laughs> uh, several of the people present, including uh, Dr. Benjamin Franklin Dryden. I forget what his doctorate is. He's not a medical doctor. I know that. But he had a doctorate. He could speak Spanish. He spoke with these priests, and they were totally open. We're here to talk to Lefebvre about electing a pope. Well, apparently, they got nowhere. Uh, Father Saints died under mysterious circumstances about two months later in Houston, Texas. If you look up the Wikipedia page, it says something totally different. But I heard this 30, 35 years ago. So right. that's closer to, closer to the time. Well, the other two priests still carried on. Mm-hmm. And Dryden, had he went home and he started looking into it. And he wrote an article on it, which I think I've put on Scrib D. Yes. Uh, these two priests, they went back home trying to figure out what to do. And that's how Bishop Peter Martin Uden Tuck comes into the picture. He consecrated them as bishops to preserve the order of bishop until the papal election could be assembled. Okay. So, and that was discussed in several meetings with traditionalist priests Uh, in the United States. Well, two of the uh, Tookline bishops got into a squabble about about the time Bishop Took died, and they split from each other, and the idea of electing a pope kind of died out. Well, it didn't die out completely because there were several other people thinking about it. Uh, I had heard about the idea of electing a pope, and in fact, uh, ended 1983, I wrote a letter to all of my friends why I was quitting traditionalism. Mm, mm-hmm. okay. And you can find that online. <laughs> and so one of the things I put in there, because I'd heard about electing a pope, if anyone knows anything about electing a pope, explain to me how we can do this. Right. But I was not yet 100% convinced we should do that. I was still sorting things out. I was open to well, uh, in about ni- September of 1987, 
I received a letter from a friend we've been talking about, and he quotes from what we consider the only value in Calvo, so from the 19th century. It states in there that Peter will have a perpetual line of successors of the papacy. You can simplify it, Sede Vacante's end. Right. That, so one of my conclusions from that was there will probably be a pope reigning at the final trumpet. Yes. We won't be in Sede Vacante. Because some of your Sede Vacantists have gone to the extreme of thinking we'll never have another pope. Oh. You know, and practice, that's how they act. Although uh, Bishop Moises Carmona, who was consecrated by Took, went to his grave wanting the election of a pope. Right. So, but yes, and I was one of the people who became convinced in 87, but it's not just me. Several of us reached the same conclusion at the same time. Uh, one man sent out a letter, and I forget how he got my name. It was probably easy to get because I was in correspondence with like-minded people at that time. You were and, already writing at that time, right? I had written a little bit. I didn't really start writing until we put together a series of articles in 19, summer 88, one electing a pope. We included like Dryden's article. He had already died by this point. Uh, we had an article, we had articles from several other people and we kind of filled in the gaps because we were trying to sort of, okay, we need to have a papal election because a pope needs to be elected. The church is a perfect society, so it always has, at all times, the means of supplying itself with a head if the papacy is vacant. Right. And so that, moving forward, that being determined, we have to figure out how. And that took us from uh, September 87 until uh, the book, Will the Catholic Church Survive the 20th Century, came out, which covered a large area of things, you know, we did a section on how to interpret church law, a section on heresy. Then we go into Ron Colley, that's the second anti-Pope John 23rd in history, the first one being from the Western Schism, and Paul VI were heretics prior to their election. Because those who, okay, there was a book came out, True or False Pope. Uh, I'm not sure the authors are members of the society. But they are, uh, well, the head of the society, Bishop Clay at the time, wrote the introduction or a letter at the beginning of it. In any case, he goes into uh, the vacancy from the proposition that John 23rd became a heretic when he put out Pachum and Terrace, and mm-hmm. Paul VI became a heretic sometime when he signed the Vatican II document. Right. It, People were somewhat indefinite until they realized, well, that's still an open question. Can a pope become a heretic? And they prove that, no, they can't. But by the time they wrote that book, that wasn't our proposition. Our proposition was that a heretic attempted to become pope. Well, that one is safe. And in fact, you can go on a Society of St. Pius X website. It's an article Clear ideas on the Pope's infallible magisterium, where they uh, they uh, don't believe the bull cum ex apostolis officio, which is what we base ourselves on, is infallible. When it's, but it it states that a heretic cannot 
get any office in the Catholic Church. Now, the next statement is, and they go back to someone from uh, the only Vatican Council in the 19th century, a discussion says, we don't believe cum ex is infallible, but the principle is because it's part of the ordinary magisterium. In other words, everyone is taught a heretic can't get an office in the church, not just Pope Paul IV in that particular bull. He was just restating something that's been held from the time of Christ. So they come from a different direction on that. So all we had to do was prove that John Twenty-Third and Paul VI were heretics prior to their apparent election. Means they never became pope in the first place. Oh, okay. And so, so not latte sententiae, but something different. Well, it's latte sententiae, only it happened prior to their apparent election as pope. So they resigned their office of cardinal, bishop, etc. Long before they attempted to become pope, they weren't. They had no office when they walked into the conclave. Hmm. Okay. Okay following you now (laughs) (laughs) yeah i know we cover a lot of ground that's why i wrote a book (laughs) so so then once you came to this conclusion this is what led to the conclave actually taking place Mm -hmm. exactly so so how did how did were it was it the same people that you were communicating with that then held the conclave that had you elected or were how did that conclave come about specifically for those people how did you decide as a group that this was going to happen on this day at this time? Okay. Well, that the uh, articles in 1988 were circulated amongst a lot of Sadificantas. We didn't limit ourselves to those who were conclavists because we're trying, Sadificantas, you need to know there's another step we got to go to. That's what we did moving forward. Well, we weren't getting our point across. That's why two of us, talking to each other, we've got to put together a whole book. I think it would be written a lot simpler now than it was then. But we want we want to cover everything and some of the principles, like right now in my current book, uh, a single sentence might summarize everything we need, but we didn't have that sentence back in the late 80s. <laughs> so we had to put together a longer proof so we proved first the papacy is vacant because you can't have a papal election when there's a pope already sitting there. Very much <laughs> correct. <laughs> okay. Once we proved that, the next step is going into how can we assemble? Well, part of being a perfect society, the church, okay, the ordinary electors are the cardinals. Well, we've just proven there are no cardinals left because they all resigned at Vatican II. All right. And anyone appointed after October 9, 1958, weren't appointed to the cardinal because the man appointed him wasn't Pope. So we prove there are no cardinals. The next step is that's where you get into some speculation because it's never happened before. You know, what do you do next? Mm-hmm. Well, we looked into church history. You know, how were other papal elections held? Because you know, papal elections seem and appear pretty normal, okay? Now. Well, now, well I mean, we haven't had a really contested, well, not contested election, a difficult election several centuries. In fact, we might go back before the Protestant revolt, because once the Protestants revolted, 
we kind of got our act together. No one messed with papal elections. We didn't have anything complicated. Things just went smoothly. You know, they process into the Sistine Chapel. You know, they vote. And eventually, white smoke goes up. It might be short time, long time, but that doesn't really matter. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we get back before the Protestant revolt. In fact, as I was thinking about research later on, I realized every, what well, you might consider an advance in papal election law, was came about because of how they had to hold a papal election. In other words, they violated the letter of the law. Take a look at the uh, second longest interregnum way back. The uh, They finally you know, decided compromise. They chose like six or seven cardinals. Let's just go elect a pope and let's get out of here. Of course, <laughs> well, the faithful were kind of tired of waiting. Uh, yes. They had boarded up the place. And when that didn't work, they took the roof off. <laughs> they did. Yeah, okay. All right. And so finally they said, I'm tired of sitting here in the rain. <laughs> but we got to do something because what we're doing isn't working. Uh, inspiration. That they came, definitely had to codify from the chaos. Right. But notice, they violated the letter of the law, which didn't allow for compromise. Well, now that was put into the law. I'm not sure. I know what got me... I think it's Paul VI wrote a papal election law, and he took out inspiration. You know, here, John Twenty-third opened the windows, let the Holy Spirit in, and now we're kicking him out of papal elections. I thought, this is kind of contradictory. <laughs> I think Pope Fabian might have something to say about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so sounds like you folks are probably more up on your history than I am at the moment, because my studies, I'm having, I'm working on other issues. I mean, I know well, we're all the way back in the 10th century right now. We started with Peter and we're moving our way, but it's there are, yeah. there are a lot of people to cover. Right. So, But you already know that there's been some really funny things happen, uh, but the resulting Pope was never questioned. Mm-hmm. There's validity. Because there was no reason to question it. So you're already studying that. I don't have to cover all that ground. <laughs> Although there's some things that you probably haven't got to yet, because I know one emperor pointed three popes in a row. The third one was eventually canonized. Oh, we're getting we're getting close. We're almost yeah, there. I, I, say, I didn't think we were quite there yet. So that resulted in in your conclave because you've now looked back at the the history of how elections are taking place right. and right. and this idea of the the perfect electorate and that a church will supply its own head. And right. resultingly, there is an election on exactly. July 16th, 1990. Correct. And you are elected. Right. Well, the book, Will the Catholic Church Survive the 20th Century, we sent to every Sadie group in the world. Because there was a something similar. That, I think Traditio has a Catholic directory of traditionalist mass centers. Yep. Well, a man uh, out of St. Louis, Radko Jansky, was publishing something similar. And by that time, he would indicate their Society of St. Pius X or their Sede Vacantis, or I think he has some other designations. Well, we just um, blanketed the Sede Vacantis because technically the Society of St. Pius X, in our opinion, is in system because they are accepting an anti-pope as their pope. 
They don't right. pay him, but that's another story. <laughs> so we didn't approach them. And did you get a large response when you sent out this information? No. And that we expected that because they had already in practice had set up their own basically little church, which I cover why we reject the traditionalists. Mm-hmm. They, they've created a new kind of priest and bishop, sacramental priests and bishops. In other words, all priests and bishops really do are as administer sacraments. Well, that's not how Jesus had the church. He said, I'm teaching authority, uh, of course, authority to erect dioceses and all this stuff. They say, well, we're in an emergency. We can do whatever we please, which is no. <laughs> well, your Sede Facantes should all have been conclavists because Sede Facantes end. But, okay, we got a perfect example happened just the other day. Uh, Bishop Daniel Dolan in Cincinnati mm, died. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. The bishop who consecrated him, Mark Piverunas, out of Omaha, was there at his funeral. But what's significant, Dolan had just consecrated a bishop to send down to, or from South America, in part, just in case he woke up dead one morning, which is what happened. Well, when that bishop came to consecrate his successor to take over in Cincinnati, Bishop Mark Piverunas was not present. So there's a division between insative vacantism. This is just one obvious thing. So they're not even united. What's, I mean, our basic catechism, one of the marks of the church is unity. And they don't have it. There's a lot of fracture, for sure. Um, yes. I think mom ran across the word fissiparius, which means fracturing and fracturing and fracturing. That's what's happened to the whole traditionalist movement with mm-hmm. exception of the indult, which in my book, I don't count them as traditionalists. I know they probably do, but I just did that in my particular book to make a distinction. I mean, I'm not faulting them, but I thought, I start out my right in the introduction, I'm not counting these people in because their situation is different and I'm not really covering that because it's obvious they're in full communion mm-hmm. with a man I consider a heretical antipope. Mm-hmm, okay. mm-hmm. So there's basically just part of the conciliar church, which is why I put that separation there. I'm not criticizing them. I know many of them are great people. They're traditional minded. They are probably going to watch this. You know, they might they'd be studying, which is that's all good. But I made a distinction for my use in that particular work. Right. Right. Okay. But yeah, your traditionalists. Well, the society. They split up all the time. Mm-hmm. Well, and the conciliar church has quite a lot of fracture at the moment as well, which we are seeing play yes, out in real time. That because it's kind of interesting. I, if you are part of the conciliar church, Francis is Pope. And therefore, you have to accept what he legislates. We don't get to pick and choose. I know your uh, recognize and resist group called Sative Accountants Pope Sifters. No, we're not Pope sifters. We reject the completely. Right, okay? right. We say they're not Pope. Therefore, we don't have to pay attention to them. 
recognize and resist as Pope sifters. As I was it Rome has spoken, the case is closed, has now become Roman spoken, the debate is on. Is this traditional or is this <laughs> God, the <laughs> debate is definitely on. <laughs> yeah, it is. Well, I mean, especially since Francis came in. Mm-hmm. Very much so. And and that's definitely something that, that we look at, even though we are covering the 10th century, a lot of the, the debate around Pope we do cover as as we look at the news, because it's very pressing on how it impacts perception and historic impact of the Catholic Church. Well, let's face it. We want to be in Jesus Christ's church, okay? And what Francis is doing is troubling, you know, and some might be saying, is it time to hit the exit? Because well, they've left I mean, I mean, this is going to be, a, this is a question that's on the table. Definitely. What do we do with, you know, Francis? Benedict appeared more conservative. He really wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> he just, well, see, that was a shift that occurred in the 70s. Mm-hmm, the focus mm-hmm. was taken away from the doctrine, which is what, uh, what I call veterans, those of us who got out or were starting out even in the 60s, we got out because of doctrine, not because of the change in the mass, although that's what got our attention and finished pushing us out the door. We realized that's no longer the Catholic Church. Well, after Lefebvre came along and your traditionalist priests started setting up, uh, originally they called them mass centers. Because, uh, they couldn't... Uh, under church law, set up chapels or churches or anything like that. They've since relaxed on that, although, as I prove, from their own statements, they realize they don't have any regular authority in the church. It's all extraordinary. So they, they may put pastor on the front door of the church and ha- have someone's name underneath. Well, like Dolan did. Mm-hmm. Like, but... When you read their actual technical stuff, they realize they're not pastor. Well, if they're not pastors, they have no authority over Catholics in any place in the world. They're relying on some emergency authority. And it's questionable whether, like, for instance, the sacrament of confession, which requires not just holy orders, but authority, mm-hmm. are even valid. Well, and it goes to show how how many actual fractures there are at any level of of the church mm-hmm. because there this is constantly up for debate, like you're saying. So right. it's not surprising that we're seeing that in the Sede Vicantis movement as well. Why you didn't get a large response? Right, I was I wasn't surprised. In fact, it was kind of funny uh, talking with someone who actually did participate. She asked, "Well, where are we going to hold this?" <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah, right. Teresa, we're going to be able to hold this in your living room. And hers was a small living room, okay? And that's what actually happened. Uh, was it not a general store? Well, it's actually, yeah, but I mean, size-wise, we could have held it in her living room. Yeah, it was in a <laughs> building my dad owned. Ah, okay. Okay. And we just decided to use that because it was convenient. <laughs> right. Because we, we want to be prepared with the largest place we could pack yes. it together. Just in case. Right. Just in case a miracle happened. But I, I was reasonably certain it'd be very few. <laughs> but we always hope for the opposite. 
just out of curiosity, because conclaves notoriously have a secret ballot that never ends up being secret. Do you know the full results of the conclave that elected you? Of course. I was in it (laughs) as a voter. Are you able to share that? Actually, only the Pope can share the results because he's not bound to the secret. Yeah, it was basically five to one. Oh, so almost (laughs) unanimous. That's pretty. Well, you never vote for yourself. Mm. You're not supposed to. Now, Pius XII changed the regulation how they could make sure no one voted for themselves. Right. Mid-50s sometime. In the apostolic constitution. Right. But so, yeah, it was five to one. So, so were there, this isn't a question I had sent in advance, but I'm, I'm curious, were there a lot of contenders? Well, that's another thing. Every Catholic man is eligible to be elected. There are not candidates. Now, I mean, there's like going into any conclave, their bets on, but okay, when Francis was elected, uh, I was watching the white smoke go up and stuff, and we were watching it on EWTN, but they come yes. out say who was elected in Latin. Well, I could, I got what Georgius and I didn't catch the last name. Neither did any of the announcers. He was not apparently on their short list because I mean, they would be preparing. Okay. What's the first thing they do as soon as they're able to, when a new Pope's elected on a, in the 20th and 21st centuries, you want to put out a biography of the Pope. Well, mm-hmm. you've got yourself a short list. You've got people writing on it the second the papacy becomes vacant. I mean, that's just common sense. Your newspapers are doing the same thing. They're getting ready, and then they weren't ready for Bergoglio. They waited until something, you know, like a news release came out of the Vatican before they even announced who had been elected. Now they're scrambling, let's find some footage on this guy. <laughs> So they weren't expecting it. Yeah, there are no candidates. So, But you had someone in mind because you didn't vote for yourself. So you had someone in mind that you thought would be a good fit. Uh, yes, I did. Well, I didn't vote for myself, so I voted for one of the other men that was present. <laughs> okay. Because my personal opinion was that if someone is qualified to be elected, they will actually be present this time. That was I didn't share that with anyone. Like That's a valid Okay. Yeah. I I would say they if they weren't present, it was because they had a good reason not to be. But there are there have been well Saint Peter Celestine. Uh, you probably wouldn't have got to him yet. He was a monk. They had to send people out to ask him. Do you accept? <laughs> oh, did they ever? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I mean, it's happened in the past that someone not present was elected. Yes. Or not definitely. Uh, in fact, I've even read fictional stories on that. Uh, well, and that and that's what you're talking about with acclamation and inspiration, where the divine right. spirit comes into right. that. Right. Well, it was an actual ballot, one ballot, five to one, and I lost. <laughs> that's why, jokingly, no, the burden was placed upon me. <laughs> it was, and and as of today, as we are speaking. As Pope Michael, you are now on par with Pius IX for the longest papacy on record. Yeah, uh, yeah, I passed him the other day. Ah, just the other day. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, it's not on my calendar anymore because I drop off past events. Now I'm going <laughs> after Peter's reign, <laughs> and we're not sure. 
I prepped these questions a month ago. I should have checked and seen if you had if you'd passed yet. But that that brings us nicely into my next set of questions, which is about your papacy, because I would love to know what does a day in the life of Pope Michael look like in 2022? Uh, it depends on the day and what we've got going on. Of course, first thing in the morning is prayers and mass, which, in fact, I know is one of the questions you put down. We might as well get to it. Uh, you'll notice I'm in a different place right now. Yes. Okay. Well, uh, in fact, when I get off of here, I'm checking. We sold are selling the place we were in because I need to be on one level. Oh. I was born with slight back trouble. Well, at my age, it's finally let me know about and stairs are no longer friendly to me. <laughs> in any case, it was part of our House of Prayer project we announced a little over a year ago on the olive tree. So... Uh, I've moved here. We're, in fact, this morning we were talking with the contractor who's converting. He's got an oversized garage. We're converting that to a small church here. Okay. And there'll be room eventually for th three of us here, although we probably, well, we're not sure of where some things are going, but we may be building a church not too far outside of Topeka here soon. Oh, that's interesting. That's, That's certainly an expansion from the attic chapel. Oh, yes. Your no. standing computer. I do remember that. Right. Well, we've got a full diocese over in the Philippines. Oh, fantastic. Yes. Uh, yeah, Bishop with joined us. Wow. So then, then I can ask you these, these next questions because that plays right into that, which is how large is the true Catholic congregation now and, and how much has it grown since your documentary? Uh, it's like grown, grown significantly. I'm not sure if I've asked the uh, bishop over in the Philippines for a count. Because <laughs> mm. we've got, well, a priest that's with us just inherited a church. Oh, it's almost a year ago now. Uh, he lives in St. Louis. It's in South Central Illinois. And that congregation is 20 or 25. Oh. We've got a small mission in Phoenix. So you've doubled, tripled, quadrupled since your... I would say it's more than that even. Because wow. I, I haven't, I need to get with the bishop. Uh, we ought to take a head count. How many are with us? Yeah. And these are, these people are actually 100% with us. And then we got, those are sitting on the fence who will probably watch this, who are, you know, like subscribers to the olive tree or listen to our podcasts and thing, because the thrust of our ministry is with the exception of, you know, answering these questions, which is why I wrote this book. The thrust of our ministry is to bring people to holiness because it says in scripture, the spiritual man judges all things. Well, until they become spiritual, they cannot sort out these things. That's why there's so much confusion out there. Uh, some of these people, aren't spiritual. Now, some are because it says, uh, or moving closer said, to, right? Well, Jesus said at these times, even the elect will be deceived. Okay. And I, I see that because there's a lot of confusion out there because everyone is out there putting out their, their own take on things. 
And they can't even agree, although they might agree on the condition of the papacy. There are three propositions there. You've got one that he is Pope, which that would be everybody in the adult and all those who are with the Society of St. Pius X and uh, however... Yeah, yeah, you'd have to check with each priest and or bishop. Okay, where do you stand today on things? Williamson and his bunch believe he's Pope. Uh, yeah, uh, Father Pfeiffer just got consecrated a while back. He believes it. Of course, they don't practice it. Right. Fact, right after my election, uh, the uh, head of the religion department at KU came over to visit. And he brought up, he says, that society position never made any sense to me because it's schizophrenic. You say he's Pope, but then in practice, you're refusing him obedience. Yeah, it is a confusing organization for sure. Yeah, because I've written on that. All right, your position needs to be consistent. Okay? If you believe he's Pope, you better be ready to go hand in hand, sing Kumbaya down to the Novus Ordo. Of course, they don't do that anymore. That's what... That's one of the things that was coming in late 60s, early 70s. It got very radical. <laughs> of course, people started parish shopping while they're trying to sort things out, looking for a conservative parish. Because I recall there in Oklahoma City, everybody, they kept moving south. Well, they went to St. Francis because the uh, pastor there, Monsignor Oldie, was very conservative. Well, he got too feeble to manage a big parish, so they gave him holy angels, which is a little bit further south, and eventually he died. They, I never went to, my family never went to it, but a lot of families went clear down to South Oklahoma City to some Carmelite church where they had a concern. Mm. I got thinking at the time, I said, we keep going south, we'll be going to Dallas for mass. <laughs> <laughs> but coming back to, to your congregation and and the fact that it is growing so large. You say you have a bishop now as well. How many priests are part of your congregation? And and I have to know, is Phil Friedel still part of your church? Oh, Phil Friedel still with us and working with us. Uh, let's see. Uh, we've got about seven priests with us. Seven priests and a bishop and congregation. So it has come quite a long way since the 2011 documentary. Oh, yes, it's come a long way. In fact, it came up just the other day with one of our minor clergy around here. I was end up visiting him. And, he, and you talked about doing a second documentary. Mm. Well, there are certain things we would like to get in a video format, which right. is why I like interviews like this. This gives us an opportunity to communicate and find out well, what are, what do people out there want to know? We want to manage the content. We would still like to have someone independent, you know, working with us to actually make the documentary. Right. Right. So that you can get the outside perspective. Right. So, cause that was one of the things I remember the presentation and the documentary and Professor Miller over there's one hosted us. That's the, he was, now he's Professor Emeritus. In any case, he came up and said something about my documentary crew. And I said, no, this is not my documentary crew. And he just smiled because I doubt the Society of St. Pius X would let an independent documentary crew on their property. 
Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. Because that's the documentary was a great move forward because it showed we're open. I mean, we're not Mm -hmm. trying to hide anything. Okay. Yes. And that's what it needs to be. Well, and should be. And and that's one thing that that we're particularly passionate about at Pontifacts is is approaching this to an audience that isn't just a religiously minded audience. We we want people to to look at the history and understand the movement of popes and the papacy throughout history, even if they've never had any exposure to it prior. So there are a lot of people who will come to this podcast and and have never heard of sedevacantism or conclavism or the Novus Ordo or any of that. And so this will be a, an entirely fresh take for them. Right. And that And that brings me to my next question, which is, Aside from the religious organizations, what sort of responses does your papacy receive from the general public, maybe even the non-religious public? Because I know you've gone viral a number of times on the internet. Right. Uh, Actually, if you go to anyone but members of the conciliar church or traditionalists, I'm well received. And I mean, these people will know I'm Pope Michael. That's how I found you. <laughs> <laughs> right. But I mean, these are just general people. Well, I got involved in the uh, Oakland Neighborhood Improvement Association here in Topeka. I'm now its president. And I know okay. I, there one board member may not know I'm Pope Michael. We have never discussed it. But the rest of the board I know knows because something came up and I informed them. I said, this could come up because this person is coming to our Neighborhood Improvement Association meeting, and I want to, them to have a heads up. And they didn't even comment on. You know, wow! They elected me president <laughs> eventually. So, so you don't generally lead with that in in the other forms when you're in a, engaging in secular activity. You don't always right. Lead I don't with lead with that. Mm. But okay. I mean, from the dress, they know I'm something. <laughs> <laughs> So this and this is your standard daily dress. Uh, yes, although I do wear secular clothes sometimes. Uh, well, when I became president the first time, the outgoing president recommended that since I'm now representing the whole neighborhood, I might tone it down a bit. And I discussed it with my spiritual director and my clergy, and they agreed with his proposition. So right, that seems reasonable. Right, for instance. If I'm taking meetings with the city, which I did last couple weeks, I'm in lay clothes. Now, sometimes I'll show up and I'll be wearing cassock because I'm stopping by on my way to a religious thing, like to pick something up at the city hall. Or So, I mean, they know I'm up to something and I, it's not like I hide it. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> it's not Batman. <laughs> No, it's not a bad man. No. <laughs> so, and then that sort of ties into my next question as well about how your papacy has changed in the last 30 years. Because obviously there is a level of modernity that comes with living in 2022. So how do we modernize the church in a non-heretical way? And, and how are you keeping up with the 21st century? Like your book said, how will the Catholic church survive the 21st century? How are you surviving the 21st century? Well, okay. The first decade, I mean, we were carrying on correspondence and things. But we already knew 
most of the people, they implicitly rejected us. I mean, we contacts were slow. Then I heard about this wonderful thing called the internet. <laughs> and it finally came because I was living outside of Delia, Kansas on five acres time. Well, the internet finally came in the summer of 99. As soon as it came in, I figured out how to get on it. Perfect. Well, yeah. Well, first you had to learn how to negotiate and all this stuff. And then, yeah, someone I had met, she was pulling stuff off the internet like nobody's business. Like, wow, there's a lot of stuff. We got to figure out how we can be on the other side of that where they're pulling our stuff off. And that's, you know, I started out with, uh, yeah, with Homestead, with just, you know, one of their regular, I think it was free website or something. Then I eventually, the Vatican in Exile was born and it's, it's evolved through several um, major revisions to bring it up to date. Of course, as technology moves forward, uh, I do like the armchair videos, which you'll find mm-hmm. on the YouTube channel. I have to ask if he's got a Vimeo channel for that. Yeah, yeah. I've got a YouTube channel, but I haven't put anything there in years. But that's the beauty of the Internet. Once it's there, it's speaking. Absolutely. And plus, uh, well, like I republished several things I wrote in the 80s because I figured, all right, people are looking into what's going on. I want to be open and upfront with them about it because this is how my own thinking evolved, how I got to where I am today. And then I got, in fact, in the olive tree, they put at least one vintage video, you know, from my own YouTube channel could be something from, because when did we get on YouTube about Oh nine or 10, somewhere along in there. That was a learning experience. <laughs> Your online church is older than our, our whole podcast. <laughs> <laughs> right. What someone noticed is that every time we made a step forward, the Vatican would follow. Mm. We were first. <laughs> Interesting, because that will sort of tie into this question as well. Because I wanted to know if you'd had any contact with the conciliar church at the Vatican and and how aware they are or how aware you think they are of what you're doing. Well, I do know the Kansas City Star did an article on the election in 90. They called the Vatican. Okay. The response was no comment. Okay. Okay. (laughs) And then nothing happened. Nothing happened. We really haven't cross paths. Uh, well, there is, I'm not sure if it's in the documentary, uh, one of the conciliar priests came to the uh, presentation in Lawrence at Kansas University. Yes, I remember that. He was okay. very, very um, amped up, steamed about what what had to be said. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes, it was be expected. Well, you got a little backstory on him. When he gets up and introduces himself, I already know where he's from. I knew his grandfather. He lived in St. Mary's, Kansas. He grew up right next to the seeing the society and all the craziness that went on there. So he already had a background into this. Fair. That that makes it make sense. 
I thought he was unnecessarily aggressive in in just that context of the the video. Right. So I've met I've met him. I just met uh, the uh, priest at Christ the King Church here in Topeka. Uh, well, I have a pr- have a small mission at Thornton Place where Mom lives. We have mass every Sunday morning. Well, in addition to that, I'm working with a few people, and this one gal had some personal problems, and she's trying to decide: Do I want to go with the priest from Christ the King, or do I go with him? Or Pope and, Michael, right? And so, just so happened, I was just getting ready to leave when the priest from Christ the King walked in. So the three of us were visiting, and she brought up one of the issues, and. He was actually agreeing with me on whatever the point was, and like it really shouldn't talk about because that's personal. But and then we're walking out together, and he thanked me for my ministry at Thornton. Wow! So he's he's definitely simmered a little bit in terms well, of discussing his point. Yeah, yeah. Uh, those would be those would be the only two contacts I've really had with the conciliar church. Not that I wouldn't talk with anyone. I've seen the local pastor from afar. <laughs> fact, yeah, he was across the street at the Seward Avenue dedication. Do you have any contact or engagement with non-Christian religions? Have they responded to your papacy at all? Uh, not really. I have given uh, some interesting presentations. If if I can work it into the schedule, I will. I, I addressed a group. They, yeah, they they labeled themselves as skeptics. The man who invited me was an atheist. So I put together a presentation. That's why I got my two stick figures. I used them for the first time there, showing the difference. Uh, of course, one of the people there was hot about the pedophile crisis. This mm-hmm, one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I went over there in 13, yeah. And so we got Q&A. To a big thing on the pedophile crisis. Which it should be at certainly an open topic of conversation, although it doesn't seem that you would have as much influence or impact in that particular. Right. She was connecting me with them, maybe. But yeah, I can understand why people are upset. All right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so I just pointed out, because this is a perfect time to show the difference between the 1983 code and 1917 code of Canada law. Mm-hmm. 1983 code simply says that a pedophile priest will be punished with a just punishment. And so the way they act, I guess, moving them across town is considered punishment enough. Whereas 1917 code, Bishop has no choice. He's got to pull the priest because absolutely, it's the laite sententia again. He is, let's see excommunicated and suspended from all function as a cleric. Interesting. The only way he can be restored is it'd have to go clear to Rome. Right. Every case would be judged in Rome. I mean, the bishop might be asked to gather evidence, but the case would have to go to Rome. So they weren't, wouldn't be restored. <laughs> well, and that's definitely something that we intend to cover in quite a lot of detail because there has been a lot of canonical changes in the conciliar church regarding yes. that right now. And so it will be interesting to see that, that history. I didn't, I haven't heard that before. So that's right. I'm making a mental note of something to add to my research for that. 
I can recall mom when they were used to broadcast the bishops conference here on EWTN. They went into a big long thing to deal with the pedophile crisis. I mean, they set up a system that was going to sound. I haven't begun on a trip. I get home, mom tells me, I think if this goes in, it'll help. This is the PCB 2019 conference? Oh, no, no. This is way back. Oh, okay. 15, 20 years ago. Okay. In any case, John Paul II was still in. Mm, They send it to Rome for approval. Rome kicks it back. This has insufficient due process of law and threw the whole thing out. Uh, Nothing was done. I mean... And something needs to be done. And that's where a lot of the criticism comes in about being very angry about the conciliar church's response and their failure to respond appropriately. Mm-hmm. So on the flip side of that, I'm curious, beyond the, th- the theological and doctrinal points, which are clearly the most foundational in this moment, is there anything that Francis is doing that you approve of? I have seen a couple of things he's done. I couldn't tell you right now. But I'd run across it and say, well, I didn't have to agree with that. I mean, even a broken clock is right twice a day. <laughs> He's not okay. going to do everything wrong. He's going to do some things that I agree with. And because that's some of your, well, have you heard of radical traditionalism? I, I've definitely seen the rad trad mostly yeah. on Twitter, but yes. <laughs> well, so someone that was with us for a while sent me an article and wanted me to refute it. About radical traditionalism, I'm reading, reading, reading. Well, I can't refute it because that's not us. Right. He was thinking that's what that's what he wanted to be. Well, we're not radical traditionalists, okay? We're Catholics. We're Catholics, and on you know some issues, we don't speak much because you're not you already know where we stand on that just from the where we're standing in general. The church's teachings are already clear. So why should I waste my time on like, well, we'll take the issue of abortion, Roe versus Wade, okay? I don't Very know. That, yeah, yeah, especially with the reversal. Mm-hmm. Now, I was talking with someone and said it should be reversed, and but not for the moral issue. It's just a bad decision. I mean, they the original Supreme Court overstepped their bounds. It didn't make sense. I mean, this even came up in... I think it was uh, when Bork was nominated to the Supreme Court, this came up, and he just said it's a bad decision. The actual the actual precedent that was set, that's what right. you're referring to. Yeah, okay. Exactly. And I tend to agree. It, it needed to be reversed. but To be reworked, at very least. Uh, no, you, throw, you have to throw, because the Supreme Court shouldn't be making this decision. Constitution is clear. Anything not specifically given to the federal government is left to the states or the people. Now, I'm not sure saying that the states are going to get it right. I'm afraid they're going to get it wrong. And as a people, at least in parts of this country, we're going to commit the sin of approving abortion in some manner. That is a sin. Until recently, that sin was on nine people on the Supreme Court. Was it a half century ago or so? About that. Yeah, well, and it, it, it represents that, that idea of governmental jurisdiction. And actually, I have some some questions on that as well, as we get into the idea of the conciliar church and beyond and the role of papal politics and whatnot. 
The role of Pope has almost always been one that has intrinsically tied with secular and political power from like a temporal influence in Rome to a dominant sovereign in a modern landscape. So in the 2020s, how political should the Pope be? We're, we can't stay out of politics. All right. So you think a Pope shouldn't be political at, at this right. stage? Well, not at not this time because we're back, we're back in persecutions, a different kind of persecution. But we're back in the persecutions again, the first three centuries, when the, the only nice thing is we're not in the catacombs. <laughs> that is true. We're above ground level. <laughs> I just did a presentation about those early Popes living in the catacombs last weekend. So. Right. So we are here more about the spiritual and that till there's a restoration, which might not come until after Antichrist has come and gone, we won't be back into the political arena. So what about papal infallibility? Do you think the Pope is infallible? Yes. And what about papal resignation? Should the Pope ever retire or abdicate? Uh, There would be cases when it has happened. One pope that resigned was eventually canonized because that was that monk I was telling you about. Celestine V. And was like, I can't handle this thing. <laughs> I love the story of Celestine V. He's he's such an interesting pope because he, he absolutely is. had no desire to be pope whatsoever. <laughs> right. Because, well, you, you probably studied about the pope who sold the papacy to another pope. It's coming. You really should have resigned and we get this straightened out. So he resigned. Uh, Gregory the 12th resigned to help end the Western schism. So, I mean, there are occasions when a Pope not only can resign because it's right in the code of canon law, at least why 17. I haven't read that part of the 83. <laughs> I do own a copy. <laughs> Do you have a plan to retire or will you stay Pope until you're not of this earth anymore? Uh, until death do us part like in marriage. <laughs> you know, I, I have no plans to resign. Okay. I mean, there was a, well, there were a couple of failed movements in, among the Sede Vacantis around the turn of the century to try and get the Sede Vacantis together and have a universally recognized election. Now, if that had come off at a certain point, yes, I would resign in favor. Of it. But my decision was for the because the reason for resigning is not for personal benefit, but for the good of the church. And if it's necessary to step out of the way, but the way the attitudes are now, there's no real movement. I mean, there is a movement. There's a website, pray for the pope, prayforapope.com, which is run by well. I'm not sure if they're Sede Vacantists or not. I mean, there's a Sede Occupantist, those who believe Francis is Pope, which you'd have those in the Conciliar Church and the Indol and the Society of St. Pius X and some others represent the rest of that group. Then you have a, I wouldn't call it a theory, because the second I read it the first time, I said, I know one thing for sure, this isn't right. It's called uh, the Material Formal Thesis or the Cassiacum Thesis. It's called Sede Privationism. What they teach is that Francis is materially Pope because he was elected, but not formally Pope because he can't formally become Pope until he ceases to be a heretic. Oh, okay. All right. Now, yes. 
At one point, the sative vacantis were saying that is part of sative vacantism. And I said, hold it just a darn minute. That's not sative vacantism. They're like the Society of St. Pius X and the Recognize and Resist. They're waiting for the conversion of George Bergoglio so he can become Pope Francis. Right. It's just their position on whether he's fully in or not, that's where it varies. It's almost like a reversal of ex cathedra and the idea of papal infallibility. Right. Exactly. And so I can I put them over there. Well, apparently there it, it was a split between Dolan and Sanborn. Sanborn is a Sade privationist, and Dolan was a solid Sade Vacantus. He was a Sade Vacantus in 1978. He gave the retreat when I was in seminary with the Society at Armada, Michigan. Silent retreat until his conference on Sade Vacantism. <laughs> that blew the silence. Well, I mean. <laughs> stirred everybody up. <laughs> but yeah, he was, well, a lot of those in Econa in the 70s were sative conscious in their heart, although uh, the practice was to pray for Paul VI when I was over there in 77. And I mean, it was always, yeah, I mean, they still pray for Francis now in their public liturgy as best I know. I haven't seen, I see they have a podcast on, but I'm sure they do because that's their practice. Although in the Society of St. Pius X, there are a number of sative occultists. I keep hearing that from other people, yeah. People coming through the journey of reconciling exactly what they believe and trying to find the right place to fit, I imagine, is, is well, a lot of that. Basically, yeah. They, and what, so if you're a sative occultist, why do you stay with the society? I can't figure that out. Because that's another inconsistency. But it's a matter of fact, and it's not something I've heard from one person. I hear it all the time. And I'm talking with someone who's either with us or we just have gotten in contact. But, okay, then you've got sativacontism that completely rejects everything there. But have you ever heard of a website called Novus Order Watch? I don't know if I have. Uh, it's it's an interesting website. You might want to visit it. Uh, they're the ones who sponsor PrayForAPope.com. They want to, they want an end, but they just throw up their hands. They just publish something. In fact, my bishop in the Philippines sent me email. What do you think of this article? It's on Novus Order Watch. They were supporting the uh, material formal thesis. Oh, well, that's quite a switch. Well, they're, see, they're believing it's a part of sativacontism, okay, because, uh, well, it was, I think Chikata started, although right after Father Chikata died, Bishop Dolan and Bishop Sanborn split. I didn't know right. that until right after Bishop Dolan died. I was looking something. oh, wow. Well, maybe, no, it was before he died because I was looking up stuff to respond to my bishop. He said, this is a crazy craziness, but I don't know where to go with it. Well, I I need to polish that up. But I in about three hours I put together a document to show him everything, because that's the type of stuff I have to keep in my mind when these questions come up, because who needs an answer yesterday? Right, exactly. Because he's dealing with priests and people. Speaking of priests and people, one of the major, major issues that we're seeing a lot of conversation around, particularly in light of the sex abuse scandal of the conciliar church, 
is clerical celibacy. Why is it a must in the Catholic Church, and is this something you support? Uh, basically, we didn't always have clerical celibacy. Definitely not. <laughs> Although, yeah, you run into people, and I'm not just talking now. If I went over and got uh, Denziger's Enchiridion Symbolorum, basically Henry Denziger is the originator of it, and he compiled all the uh, documents from the Vatican, you know, the popes, that affected faith and morals in his opinion. Mm -hmm. You can look up celibacy and their documents in there. They're treating it like it's a doctrine. Well, celibacy is not a doctrine. It is not, and it hasn't been from the beginning. <laughs> no, it's, it is a practice more in the West than the East. Yes, also that. <laughs> Considering the problems men with vocations have, because the society doesn't really support vocations like they say they do. A lot, they've, they've tossed a lot of seminarians out in their ears for no good reason, including me. In fact, well, all five of us that went to Econ, uh, with one, ex yeah, one exception, from the United States in 77, were tossed down their ear. The other one, I ran into him later. He said, no, I quit because I don't think I have a vocation, and that's perfectly acceptable. Sure. But some of these people, they get tossed down their ear because back in the 70s, if you want to be a priest, it was uh, the society or go to the old Catholics or you know, try someplace totally different. Eventually, they, said, they just gave up and got married. Ah. Well, might they not still have a vocation? Right. Right. I mean, I thought about marriage in the mid '80s. But if I'm not going to be a priest, I don't want to be single all my life. So, I mean, I entertained the thought. <laughs> right. So, do you think it's necessary? Like, of of your priests and your bishops, is this something that you still advocate in in your Catholic Church? Uh, no, uh, I have uh, actually. We will permit married men into the priesthood. In fact. Uh, Father Francis Dominique, who works with me, was married long before his conversion, and his wife is still alive. So technically, he's a married priest. And if she would ever reconcile with him, because he asked that a while back, what if she reconciled? Well, you're married in the eyes of God. Right. And we accepted you in to the priesthood with knowing this. Yes. Yeah, I'm friends with, uh, uh, well, several priests who are, they're not in the church, but they're very supportive of us who are married. I think that's interesting because that is, a, it's a very big sticking point for a lot of people when dealing with the conciliar church, that this is such a hard and fast mandate is problematic. Uh, it, yes. I don't think having married priests would eliminate the pedophile problem. Mm, it's it's not the only you know, answer they, to that situation for sure. Bring it up. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But they've accepted married deacons. And I remember when that came out, whenever it was, I thought, you know, I'm for that idea. <laughs> so you asked earlier, it was not France, it was under John Paul II, I think, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. I think so. My co-host, her father, is is a married deacon in the church. Okay. So. Uh, mom's got two cousins who are married deacons. Ah. So, yeah. so it's... Definitely something that you support then. I, that's yes, I support married men in the priesthood. Yeah, because if they have a vocation 
And of course, the wife must be cooperating all this or out of the picture. But yes, so that's one thing I think we do need to do. And we are doing it. So a, a follow-up on that as well. What about the role of women in the Catholic Church in terms of women deacons, women priests? Is this something you'd like to see in the Catholic Church? Or do you if, still have... If Jesus was going to have women in the clergy, he would have ordained and consecrated his mother. Because who would be more worthy to be a priest? Now that women will not be in the ministry in that manner. Hmm. Okay. So that is still something that that you view you set your traditional precedent on that back to the apostles. Right. Okay. So that is a lovely segue to our last section because I you have graciously given us quite a lot of time today, but yeah. I am very excited to talk to you for a moment about papal history because that's our real jam. <laughs> and yes. and so I I want to know who is your favorite pope in history? I yeah, I was looking over those questions, and I really I couldn't narrow it down to one. I like a lot of the popes. I I haven't been much in papal history in thirty years. I was more into it before the election, looking in for precedence for the election, and then we have a two volume set of lives of the popes, which I read way back, trying to get ideas. You know, can I find out? How did they handle these things? I got through the first volume, a little bit into the second volume, and I realized, yeah, I learned a lot of stuff, but they, nobody dealt with what I have to deal with. Definitely a different scenario. I didn't only think I had a note one that helped me. Well, I remember when I uh, discovered uh, St. Bernard's Day Consideratione, who mm-hmm. was a Pope Eugene the Third. Okay. Wonderful, wonderful book not helpful for running the church in the 20, late 20th, early 21st century, because nobody's dealt with the problems I deal with. So I i don't spend as much time in papal history. Right. My time is spent in looking at, okay, how can we apply scripture and the fathers to today? Which is questions like uh, celibacy. Right, right. So, so taking their doctrinal legacies more than necessarily their historical legacy. Right. Is there a Pope that you can think of that stands out as having had an incredible impact on the church that you look to, whether that be doctrinal or or based on election or anything like that that stands out to you? Uh, I like Gregory the Great in that regard because <laughs> I'm into his stuff some. Let's see. Yeah, Gregory has definitely he is because we score our popes on oh, on a ooh. on a series of, of of silly categories, but Gregory <laughs> is up there in in the highest of scores. I think he's currently in second place. Oh, okay. Who's first? Pope Damasus the first, because we also mark on scandal. So Pope Damasus <laughs> received a lot of points for scandal. <laughs> oh, okay. It must be interesting categories. They are, and they're very they're they're a fun way to sort of subjectively bring about the end of our show. So well, it, it's a it's a way of getting to know your subjects better. Mm-hmm. I mean, history can be dry, but it doesn't have to be. 
And papal history certainly isn't, especially when you start to factor in things like personality and impact on history. Yes. Aside from from doctrine and theology, because we have popes who have stories about being murdered by ghosts or... Hmm. Okay. Right. And that's in the record. History is just not one, you know, when I, I read it, but I realized I need to be over trying to figure out how... How do we move forward from 1990 into into a more modern? Right. So, okay, what things? Because that's well, your traditions are bad about it. They <laughs> have taken things like celibacy, which even the conciliar church still holds on to, and turned it into a big T tradition. In other words, a doctrine when it's a small T tradition. I I know I like the idea of celibacy, but I don't think. At this point, the church needs to enforce it. Right, right. We, those who, and there are married popes. There were popes who had wives. Absolutely. Yeah, I was looking that up a while back for something I was working on. Yeah, popes who had children. Some were legitimate. Yes, yes some were illegitimate. <laughs> and some of their sons became popes later on. <laughs> right. What was it? One woman was mother, grandmother, and great grandmother to three. Different popes. <laughs> right in the middle of the pornocracy that is Marozia, and we're dealing with uh, Sylvester the First. No, sorry, not Sylvester. Sergius. Sergius and the Johns. Yes, I've just written those episodes. <laughs> oh, okay. Right. But yes, it is a fascinating history. And so you're bringing in, you know, modern things because apparently your audience wants to find out about Pope Michael. So we Absolutely. had to drop a whole millennium. <laughs> yes, and we did just for you. Interestingly, if we ever get a chance to come back and, and talk to you, I'd love to talk to you about someone like Pope Honorius I, who was in fact excommunicated as a heretic posthumously, and how that plays into that idea of a pope being a heretic. Well, that's that was not excommunicated for heresy. You need to go to St. Robert Bellarmine, analyze each and every alleged case of papal heresy and prove that was not what was going on. Well, and we very much argued in favor of Honorius because we believed he was very unfairly treated for yeah. that yeah. condemnation. So I, right. I will bring But yeah, that. Robert Bellarmine's already done legwork on that because until uh, uh, 1958... Since his time, there has not been a case of an alleged papal heresy. They were all prior to him. Yeah, yeah Norris would be one of them. I'd have to go back. I'm not sure. Maybe, probably, yeah, I touched on that in this book. But, yeah, I've got research on that because that came up. And what pushed it forward is in the early days of traditionalism, those who started saying, well, no, Paul VI is still Pope, Oh, lots of popes were heretics, and Honor is always top of the list. Yeah, well, of course he would be. Yeah, Parsons Church history is great on some of these. I will have to check that out. We actually um, ended up, I just checked because Pope Gregory the Great is in third place, and Honorius is in second place because I think we were. We were very fond of him and how unfairly he was treated. So he scored very well. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> In our show. Well, um, how are they going to score? 
Well, so I'll give you our categories and you can tell me where you think you will score the best. Okay. Because this is where the fun comes in. So we have Papatum and Phallium, which is a category in which we we judge their impact on the papacy as a whole. So how how they evaluate or how they contribute to papal infallibility, papal prestige, the continuation of the church and the church's authority. Then Ooh. we have Fructus Prohibitum, where we judge the scandal, all of their bad behavior. Okay. Then we have Seculari Impactum, which is their impact with the secular world. Are they leading the conversion efforts? Are they having interesting relations with monarchs? And are they facilitating wars? Those kind of things. <laughs> and we have Facium Sanctus, where we rate their face. We, we take your <laughs> official portrait and we'll decide how many points your face gets. <laughs> and then we have a canon bonus round. If you if you are uh, a saint, we give you an extra point. And well, I, I can't win that one. <laughs> I, I'm nothing more quality to be a saint. I'm not dead yet. They can't canonize me. Exactly. <laughs> but we also have Tempus Pontificus, and this will definitely be a category for you because you get points based on how long you've been poked for. Oh, wow. So I actually did the calculation on that one for you, and your Tempus Pontificus score would be a 7.75, which is only topped by the legendary St. Peter. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You might you might just put it out for the fun. <laughs> I would. I mean, that'd be something I would share, probably like in an armchair or something. Showing the light. The scores. Yes. Yeah, sure. Why not? We could have you come and rate yourself. That's one of the reasons we're doing some of these, you know, things. Like we need to have people need to realize that popes are real people, and we have yes. the right to decide. And that's very much the a huge element of our show and why we also rate on Scandal, because it's representative of a lot of the personality that comes out. And we, we very much enjoy that. So, yes, popes are real people, and that is very much our message. <laughs> right. Okay, that's a good message. And I liked, I'm glad to contribute a little something to that idea. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, that kind of wraps. The last question that I want to ask you today which is a great question to end on and as, as a real person and as a Pope, what are your goals for the true Catholic church moving forward? Well, that's what we're working on now is establishing the house of prayer here, mm -hmm. which uh, it may, depending on what goes on, I may be here at times alone mm -hmm. because everybody else is out somewhere else, but we're wanting to, help people improve and increase their prayer life. Okay. Because what's the goal here? We're all, we all want to be saints, not necessarily canonized. <laughs> I, I doubt I'll be canonized. I'm not sure we'll even last that long, <laughs> but <laughs> the world. Well, if you do end up as a saint, we also uh, currently award saints their own patronage based on whatever we've decided is, is, is the most interesting thing about them. Oh, we okay. have the patron saints of Wiggly Foods, and uh, what else do we have? Uh, physical manifestations of stress and unfortunate Ooh. eye injuries. 
So maybe <laughs> at least you'll be a patron saint to us. We'll award you something. Okay, that'd be fun too, see? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm looking forward to getting the link to this to share with everybody. Absolutely. I will make sure that it comes directly to you. Okay, that sounds good. <laughs> Well, on that note, Pope Michael, thank you so much for all of your time. I really appreciate you taking the time to come and talk to me today and, and to explain all of, the, all of the points of the true Catholic Church as, as led by Pope Michael. So as, as a final note, where can people find you if they want to listen to your armchairs or, or yeah. read what you have written? Uh, VaticanInExile.com the N being I N, you know, because that's the uh, original website. After we got it, well, Ho- Homestead originally hosted. We've moved to a different host for a more professional look, and we have accomplished something. The search engine now works great on the website. We had issues with that because you know, most people put up a three-page website, right? Wait to think how many pages are in there. I get in, I don't do much actually in the website, but when I'm in there, it's like, oh boy. (laughs) You know, I have trouble finding things on the website. (laughs) Oh, I believe it. We we constantly put off putting together a website because we already have over a hundred episodes and it's going to be a lot of work. And so I can only imagine everything that you've written for the last 30 years on a website. It's not all on the website. And basically, the website was redesigned in, uh, let's see, we started that in 16, 2016. Okay. Now, you can go to archive and find the older ones. Right, right. But now they will know where to find you and to come and read your, your articles and see your sermons. And so that's fantastic. Okay. Enjoy well, it. Well, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate all of that. Okay.